0: lecturer and postdoctoral fellow at Columbia Law School, where he's a member of the Associates in Law program. We'll be discussing his new article, The Monetary Basis of Bank Supervision, which I'll link to in the liner notes for this episode. Lev, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're discussing today your recent article, The Monetary Basis of Bank Supervision. And as listeners are probably familiar, banks have a fairly bespoke regulatory system that applies to them that is pretty different from other uh, systems of regulating big businesses, even in in highly regulated industries. Could you give um, a little bit of a background of that unique uh, regulatory system and maybe some of the explanations for why we have this particular system uh, for bank supervision, what it is designed to accomplish, and what, what some of the reasons are for treating banks differently than a lot of businesses? Of course. So banks are regulated and they're supervised. By regulated, I
1: mean there are lots of bright-line rules that apply to banks. These rules govern things like balance sheet composition, so how much shareholder money banks must have as a percentage of the loans they make. Um, And they include rules telling banks how to account for their assets or what to do when someone stops paying their loan on time. And Dodd-Frank added a lot more rules like this. So there's rules about trading securities and originating mortgages, and maintaining liquid assets, and long-term stable funding, but lots of industries have a lot of rules. What's unusual about banking is that banks are supervised on top of all this, or as I argue in the paper, sort of underneath all of this, because the rules mostly came later. And there's no great account out there of why banks are supervised. And so the paper is really motivated by trying to give an account for that. So let me say a little bit about what supervision is as distinct from regulation. Supervision is really about two things. One is visitation, the ability to enter into a bank uninvited and unannounced and just look at everything a bank is doing. And so right now, as we speak, there are dozens of people who work for the Federal Reserve and who work for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, who are at JPMorgan Chase, looking around and working in the actual building the bank is occupying and monitoring what's happening. And then the second power that supervisors have are sort of a set of remedial powers. They can require banks to cease and desist from doing just about any business practice or activity And in more extreme circumstances, if banks, for example, have ignored those cease and desist orders, supervisors can remove officers and directors, they can levy fines, they can even revoke charters. And these remedial powers are not just tied to rule violations. Supervisors can order banks to cease and desist when they think that a bank has engaged in an unsafe or unsound practice. And supervisors have a lot of leeway to determine what counts as an unsafe or unsound practice. And so it's this sort of discretionary standards-based authority that makes supervision different from regulation and that makes banking and the legal regime governing banking different from the legal regime that governs a lot of other industries.
0: What are some of the explanations for why banks are supervised and regulated as opposed to just being regulated as as many industries are. Yeah,
1: so the most common today is sort of the simplest that banks that that banks have a lot of complicated rules that apply to them and so we got to have some set of special officials who are going to enforce those rules. And this sort of rule enforcer model makes some sense. Uh, because the supervisors do spend a lot of their time enforcing rules. But if you start to look at the history, um, and if you look at the safety and soundness powers, the rule enforcer model for understanding bank supervision appears to be fairly incomplete. The relevant provision of the U.S. code that governs the banking agency's remedial powers, which is 12 USC section 18,18 specifically says that supervisors can order banks cease and desist when there's a rule violation or when there's an unsafe or unsound practice. So people that have keyed on to this second point have often thought about supervisors as sort of gap fillers who are designed to sort of monitor the spaces in between the rules because the rules will inevitably be too crude. And this is a neat ex post sort of account of what supervisors do because supervisors do fill gaps in the rules. But as an account for why Congress created bank supervisors, it's actually a pretty poor fit for the history. Um, among other things, the rules mostly post-date supervision. And they were constructed uh, generally as a fail-safe for when supervisors um, miss things.
0: You offer in your article a new explanation, new conceptualization for why we have this supervision system that is rooted not just in regulation, but as you mentioned, um, a focus on safety and soundness. Uh, Could you describe what your conceptualization is? Um, What are some of its implications and what statutory and historical evidence have you found for it?
1: Yeah. So on my view, basically, banks are supervised because banks – were viewed by the legislators who created bank supervision as franchisees, as exercising delegated authority on behalf of the government. And if you look at the history, the legislative history of supervision, there's an abundant amount of evidence for this. So it's important to start with a model of what banks do, because for the legislators who created bank supervision, There was something very specific that banks did that was special, that required special government oversight, unusual government oversight. And what that was, was augment the money supply, create, in a sense, money. And banks do this by issuing short-term promises to pay what's called base money. And so historically, base money was gold and silver coin. Today, base money is Federal Reserve notes. And by issuing more of these promises, and there exists base money in the economy, so in the 19th and 18th centuries, these promises, they generally took physical form and they were called banknotes. Today, they're mostly recorded in ledger entries and they're called deposits. And there's $13 trillion of deposit credit in the economy today. But there's only $1.7 trillion of Federal Reserve notes. And over 60% of those Federal Reserve notes are circulating overseas. So you can see that the banks have expanded the money supply by creating these deposit credits. There's much more deposit credit in the economy than there is actual base money behind it. If everybody came and they tried to redeem their deposit credits for base money, there wouldn't be nearly enough. So banks are doing something special. They're expanding the money supply. And in the 19th century, everybody sort of understood this to be a state function. And when the first banks were set up, they were set up as explicitly parastatal enterprises. So Alexander Hamilton had a plan for a national bank. There was only supposed to be one national bank, and it was going to be like a mint. There'd be a mint that would create metal money, and there would be the national bank that would create banknotes to expand the money supply beyond the stock of metal money in the economy. And over time we moved to a different system. Um, We moved to a system because it was politically untenable, Alexander Hamilton's model, in the United States at least. Other countries continue to this day to have very, very concentrated banking systems that are composed by just a few banks that are very closely connected to the states that chartered them. But in the United States... It was a decision made to outsource money creation, to outsource this franchise freely, to have an open access monetary regime that would allow anybody to run a bank if they were willing to comply with certain requirements. And part of establishing that system was creating supervision. So New York invented supervision, and they did it in 1829, and They saw it very much as a function that was required if we were going to outsource money creation widely to lots of different people. And if you look at how New York politicians talk about what they were doing, it was all about the monetary mission of the bank and the state's responsibility for ensuring that there was a stable money supply. And so you have people like Millard Fillmore, who was one of the first bank supervisors before he became president saying things like furnishing currency in the form of banknotes and bank credit is an exclusive privilege granted by the state. And the state should take care that in granting it, the people are secured from imposition and loss. And you had a lot of people who were uncomfortable with private banks having this power at all, even if it was going to be overseen closely by special government officials. So like William Jennings Bryan, in his famous cross of gold speech said, the right to issue money is a function of government, it is a part of sovereignty, and can no more with safety be delegated to private individuals, i.e. banks, than we could afford to delegate to private individuals the power to make penal statutes or levy taxes. And so if you look at all these 19th century debates about banks and bank law and the legislatures who actually created bank supervision they understood that they were delegating very special role to private individuals and that they had to keep an eye on those individuals. And that's why they created these supervisors.
0: A core concept of uh, of both your paper and of of banking regulation um, and, and some of the history that you discuss is this concept of safety and soundness. Could you describe what that means uh, in, in a historical and, and present practice terms and, and what the origin of that concept is.
1: Yeah, sure. So safety and soundness is a kind of ubiquitous concept today in financial regulation, but no one really seems to know where it comes from or what it means. And it's sort of treated as a vague platitude, as a license for the bank supervisors to sort of decide that this or that is unsafe or unsound. And it actually has a specific monetary meaning. In particular, the word soundness has a specific monetary meaning. And and it's tied to the role that banks play in augmenting the money supply. So a, a practice is unsafe and unsound if it hinders the ability of a bank to redeem its monetary instruments in base money in a way that threatens the public's confidence in the bank-issued money supply and the stability of the overall monetary system. So let me try to break down what I mean by that a little bit. So as I was saying a moment ago, banks augment the money supply, and they do this by issuing promises to pay base money on demand. And they issue more of these promises than there exists base money on demand. And so a system that depends upon bank money also depends upon people not Wanting to convert it to base money. And a monetary instrument, a bank money instrument is sound. In the 19th century, this was understood to mean that it was convertible on demand into base money. And it's safe and sound if it's not jeopardizing the confidence that people have in the bank money system more generally. If banks were not safely sound, if people did not trust that deposits and notes were equivalent to gold and silver coin, then deposits and notes would not serve as an effective store of value, and they would not expand the economy's medium of exchange beyond its supply of base money. And so safety and soundness was referring to something very specific about banks. And so when it first entered the law books in 1847 in New York, the New York legislators who put it in there, they understood that they were giving supervisors the ability to take actions against banks that were producing money that was destabilizing for the larger system.
0: So this concept of, of safety and soundness, along with the the idea, the invention of, of supervision, and I, I think it's neat to think about uh, bank supervision as as an invention, as a as a sort of legal technology, was state driven, particularly by by New York. Uh, of course, we do have a dual federal state regulatory system in the U.S. for financial institutions. We have state chartered banks and we we have nationally chartered banks as well. In your article, you discuss uh, sort of the, the origins of the National Bank Act uh, in uh, 1863, uh, right in kind of the middle of the Civil War as a system for creating uh, multiple national banks as opposed to a single national bank as Alexander Hamilton might have had it. Could you situate uh, how the state-based innovations on banking supervision had an influence in the passage of the National Bank Act, and what have been some of the subsequent developments in the system of national banking regulation after that? Sure.
1: So, when Congress enacted the National Bank Act during the Civil War, they sort of expected the state banking system to disappear. That was largely their intent. And... Um, they were really coming back into the monetary system of the country for the first time since the 1830s. In 1836, Andrew Jackson let the charter of the Second Bank of the United States expire, and the demand for bank money in the economy began to be met almost entirely by state banks. There was a huge proliferation of state banks, and state banking law became extremely important. And New York took the lead. They had the model statute that most other states copied. And when the federal government got back into the game during the Civil War, they, too, copied from New York. And they copied a couple of critical ideas that the New York legislators had come up with. And one of those ideas was to outsource widely, to have an open access system. And so there were lots of people in Congress during the 1860s, as there were during the 1850s and 40s, who thought the government should just charter a third bank of the United States. But this was politically impossible, because the concentration of power into the hands of one bank was opposed by large portions of the American population. The genius of New York's plan was they parceled it out to lots of little unit banks that could be owned and operated by people in the local communities, but that would be collectively functioning as a larger system that would be akin to sort of a third national bank. So the National Bank Act uh, copied this structure. It also... Copied supervision from New York, and so Congress created the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, which today is the primary regulator and supervisor of commercial banks of national banks, banks chartered by the federal government. So the OCC got a start, and the OCC was based off of also off of New York's law. The OCC got visitation powers, just like. New York supervisors had. So they could enter unannounced and uninvited. They could examine the bank. They could subpoena bank documents. They could take the testimony under oath of anybody who worked at the bank. And the OCC could revoke the charter of the bank. It found that the bank was violating any of the provisions of the National Bank Act. And the National Bank Act also copied some other things from New York law. So it required all banknotes that were issued by national banks to be backed by government bonds. This was something that it got from New York. Subsequently, the federal government dramatically expanded the power of the comptroller because in the National Bank Act, the comptroller didn't have safety and soundness sort of discretionary authority. The comptroller couldn't say, these things here that you're doing are unsafe. And you should stop them. But lots of states had begun to do that. And during the Great Depression, Congress sort of changed its mind about how powerful it thought the comptroller should be. And it imported safety and soundness law from New York uh, and it expanded the remedies that supervisors had available to them. And so in the Banking Act of 1933, Congress allowed the comptroller to recommend to the Federal Reserve Board that a bank officer or director should be removed. And the comptroller would have to show merely that that officer or director had engaged in unsafe or unsound practices. In 1966, Congress enacted the FISA, and this greatly expanded the remedial powers of supervisors. So 1818, the section we were talking about earlier was part of FISA and it allowed supervisors to issue cease and desist orders. So the removal power was seen to be perhaps a bit drastic. You might not want to remove a bank officer or director, but you might want to tell a bank officer or director not to engage in a certain type of lending practice. And in fact, states had come up with similar sorts of powers for their supervisors 60, 70 years earlier. So like New Jersey, it turns out in 1899 had provided that if it appeared to the commissioner of banks in New Jersey that a bank was conducting in its business in an unsafe or unauthorized manner, he could, quote, direct a discontinuance of such unsafe practices. And so this sort of authority was adopted in federal law in 1966. And then the savings and loan crisis led Congress to sort of reiterate the importance of courts deferring to supervisory judgments under Section 1818 in 1989 and 1991. And so if you look at the sort of history of supervisory law, federal law from 1863 to the present, It's largely one of expanding supervisory authority over banks, with the major touch points being the Civil War, the Great Depression, and the 1966 Act.
0: I often find that when when people first hear of the existence of the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, it's... A very important regulator, but it's maybe a little less known to the public than the FDIC or the Federal Reserve. Often there's a puzzled reaction about the title of the office. It's a little bit of a antiquated title, uh, we might think. And I think your paper does uh, a good job of explaining the origin of that title is very much in the, the monetary focus of of banking, the, the currency uh, function of banking. Uh, in your paper, you discuss some problems that have arisen with a loss of a monetary focus for banking regulation and supervision over the last few decades. Could you discuss what some of those problems are and maybe uh, what the loss of a monetary focus might have done to contribute to those? Sure. So I think there have been two major problems
1: that that stem from the loss of monetary focus. One is with respect to banks and their activities. When we understood that banks performed a monetary function, there was a limiting principle about what banks should be doing and how we could evaluate whether banks were doing a good job or not. When policymakers stopped seeing banks as special or performing a monetary function or having a special relationship with the state and just as another type of financial intermediary, there was no longer a limiting principle. And policymakers made a lot of changes and they let banks get into lots of unrelated non-monetary businesses. And this meant that supervisors suddenly were involved in checking up into all sorts of businesses that were previously just regular old private businesses in lots of key respects. So trading derivatives is not a special state function. It's actually very difficult and expensive to monitor derivatives trading. And when you let banks get into derivatives trading, for example, it can distort the competitive playing field in the derivatives trading business. Because if you're not a bank and you're trading derivatives, now you're competing with a firm that has access to the government safety net, that has uniquely low funding costs because it can issue money. And so you're going to have a lot of changes in the composition of the financial system when you have banks engaged in non-banking, and non-monetary activities. Another problem that we had that can be attributed to the loss of a monetary focus is that non-banks started to copy the economic activity that was special about banking. In other words, they started to issue short-term promises to pay base money on demand, and they figured out ways to get those short-term promises to function as money just as banks were doing. And this led to a lot of competitive deregulation because it threatened banks' viability. And it also completely undermined the logic and integrity of the regulatory and supervisory system that had been created for banks because now there were these entities that were engaging in a very similar business without being subject to any of the laws that the banks were subject to and without being subject to any of the supervision that the banks were subject to. And so supervisors who no longer really understood that their purpose was to make sure that the bank money, the inside money, the augmented money in the economy was safe and sound and stable, they only had jurisdiction over some of that bank money now because lots of it was being created by firms that they did not supervise. This was not something that registered as a big problem before the crisis, and it turned out to be the core of what the crisis was.
0: What are some of the the policy implications then uh, for how we should be thinking about a monetary basis of, of banking uh, supervision, what what should that mean policy-wise? And maybe what should that mean for some of the non-bank players that are offering commercial substitutes for banking activity?
1: Great question. So I think that first and foremost, if we see banks as augmenting the money supply, and we understand that banks are subject to intrusive government oversight as a result then we can't allow non-banks to compete with banks and do this without being subject to the same oversight. It's sort of as as simple as that. And so Congress has a choice to make. It can allow a lot of the existing non-banks that are creating money substitutes to continue to do that and subject them to the same supervisory regime that banks are subject to. Or it can force those firms to get a banking charter and just become banks. And in a way, the latter is a cleaner solution. And it's an older solution. Most bank money in the 17th and 18th centuries took the form of physical notes, bank notes. And in the early 18th century, Parliament just forbid anyone besides the Bank of England from issuing notes that matured in six months or less and circulated in the city of London. Forbid anybody else from engaging in that business. And so you could imagine one solution being banning any entity without a banking charter from engaging in the economics of money augmentation. But that's not the only solution. You could also subject all money market mutual funds and investment banks to supervision. Uh, Now, there aren't a lot of independent investment banks left, but certainly if someone tried to replicate the Lehman Brothers business model today, that would not be subject to supervision under the current laws. And that's something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense based on the crisis experience.
0: What are some of the takeaways of this article that you would like uh, listeners to have, whether they're listening from an academic perspective, a policy perspective, or uh, an industry perspective?
1: I think uh, one big takeaway I want people to have is that ideas matter and that history matters, that a bad framework for thinking about a problem or legal design will lead to bad policies and caused policymakers to overlook dangers. Lots of people talk about the financial crisis as a 100-year flood or as the result of depravity by bankers or by regulators. And there were elements of both of these things. But at its most basic level, the crisis was a failure of policy. And it was a failure that was caused by confusion and muddled thinking about what banks do and how the laws that Congress had put in place were supposed to work. Ultimately, a stable monetary system is a design problem. When one of Elon Musk's rocket ships crashes into the ocean rather than hitting its landing pad, you know Elon Musk doesn't say, it's a 100-year flood. If we can design a monetary system correctly we won't have another crisis. And to do that, we have to begin by understanding how the laws on the books are supposed to work together and what they're designed to do.
0: Our guest today has been Lev Menend, lecturer and postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia Law School, where he's a member of the Associates in Law program. We discussed his article, The Monetary Basis of Bank Supervision, and I'll include a link to that in the episode notes for this episode. Lev, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you.